Well, to get started then, <clears throat> we came down to chapter 3 of Revelation last week. Uh, after going through two on several of the churches, and this began with the idea of who, what, why, where, when, and how are we, questions we need to answer about ourselves and about the churches here in the end time. Uh, so we come down to chapter 3 then, and that with that thought in mind, and begin with a message to Sardis. Now, no one thinks they're Sardis, I realize that, and we always branded it as the group that came before Worldwide Church of God, and indeed, as things came down through history, that may have been one fulfillment of it. But Sardis is alive, if not well, today. <clears throat> and it is not just that group, but it has to do with all of the seven churches that are extant at the end, after all the others ended their run through history, and Sardis maybe is on the tail end of its, Philadelphia is on the tail end of its, and Philadelphia is holding pretty much full sway today as the seventh nose to tail fulfillment. However, <clears throat> there is much evidence that all seven exist right at the end, and that all these attitudes are there, and that's why we have to consider them all. Uh, because it's easy for each group and each individual in the church of God today to pick one of these out and say, that's me. But is that the right analysis? Is that correct? What if we are Sardis or some of us are Sardis? So let's read this. <clears throat> Under the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things says he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you live and are dead. So he addresses the works of Sardis first, and then in the same breath says that Sardis has a name that it lives, and yet, truly, it's dead. So you're talking about living, walking, people who are physically alive, but either spiritually dead or dying. And it shows down a little later that there are some yet alive in Sardis, but it is a group of people who are dying out spiritually. And that doesn't have to refer to someone before Herbert Armstrong. That could apply to many, many people today. Because, as Ezekiel 5 says, spiritually speaking, we have thousands and thousands of people in the church today who have a name that they're in the church, that they are alive, that they're part of the church of God, and yet are spiritually dead or dying. Uh, Ezekiel says that we will die of spiritual famine and pestilence, the spiritual sword, and go into tribulation as well. And that is speaking, first of all, to the church and then secondarily to the nation. The church is already going through it and is, you might almost say, almost gone through it. And the nation is on the edge of going the same way on a physical level. So if we tie that in, we realize that we do have the dead and dying all around us. And we need to take heed to ourselves, lest we also be spiritually dying and not doing those things which keep us alive spiritually, to give the uh, attendance necessary to keep the Spirit of God alive in us, lest we quench it, lest we let it die out, 
and therefore be still walking around physically, but spiritually dead. And it can happen to anyone, anytime, anywhere. Now, it's easy to look at Sardis and say, well, who would that fit today? And you look around, and there's only one church that has a name that says that it is living, the living church of God. And it would be easy to brand those people, and it has been done by others, and, and uh, it's something that sort of leaps out at you. But I don't think that you can lay that on any one organization and say, that is the fulfillment of this, and it may not fit at all, even though they do have a name that they're living, and that's the only one I know of that has that name, and yet any of us could fall into the trap of branding someone else unfairly and also have our own works dying out and be dead works. The things that we're doing don't have the life of God and the spirit of the living God in them, but they're just things that we do that do not have real spiritual life. And I think that that is something that could be recognized throughout the church and throughout all the splinter groups, not just one that might easy it might be easy because of the name to label that. And they may not be that at all. I don't want to make that judgment, and I wouldn't want anyone else to make that judgment. It's so easy to do. But we need to apply all the scriptures to ourselves because they're here for each and every one of us to apply to ourselves for instruction in righteousness, and so on. So, let's take this personal and not just glibly throw it on another group and say, well, that must be them because of the name. Not necessarily. Anyway, there's a warning here or an encouragement that even though there are those in the church today who say they are a part of the church of God and therefore are part of the living uh, ones spiritually, that they are dead in terms of the work that they are really doing. So we can be spiritual and godly in name only, but not doing anything about it. And that could just as easily fit anyone anywhere in the church as it would any one particular group. And I don't think that we can nail these down. When you have three to four or five hundred different groups and you try to fit seven names, uh, someone's going to be missed, someone's going to be left out, uh, some will not entirely fit, and I think that is hazardous, and it is a judgment that we should really not be making. We can only examine and judge ourselves. Who, what, why, where, when, how am I? Is what this really comes down to. But if we are letting the Spirit of God and the flame and the oil of the Holy Spirit die or fall asleep, uh, and sleep can mean physically and spiritually dead, then we need to be aware. So what does he say? If we're in that position or headed that direction, he says, be watchful or redeem the time. Be careful. Be thinking. Be watchful. And strengthen the things which remain. So, this category of people that he calls Sardis here at the end are people who have become weak. And disease can do that to us. Spiritual disease can weaken us. 
and make us in danger of death spiritually. So he says, strengthen the things which remain. Take your spiritual chicken soup, in other words, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect or mature or proper before God. So there is a category of people scattered throughout the church who are not doing much spiritually and don't have many works, and what they are doing is perhaps just habit. It has no zeal, no fire, no energy, no power behind it. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Remember what you've heard, what you've seen. The things Herbert Armstrong told us, the things that we've repeated, reiterated, and enhanced and added to since in coming to understand the Scripture. Remember the things you've received and heard. Don't let them be taken away. And hold fast... Hang on to those things that you've learned about God and about His Word and about Christian living and repent. It does no good to review the Scripture, to know the Scripture, unless we begin to change and to do something about our spiritual condition. If therefore you shall not watch, if you don't wake up and be alert and Keep an eye out. I will come on you as a thief, and you shall not know what hour I will come upon you. When someone's dead, or almost dead, they fall into a semi-comatose or a torpor state where they're not very much aware of what's going on around them. And if we're almost spiritually dead, we will not be aware of what's going on will not be prepared, and it will come as a surprise. It will come suddenly, and we won't know where it came from. You have a few names, even in Sardis. Sardis is almost dead and dying, but there are a few names which have not defiled their garments, gotten the smears and the smudges and the dirt and the filth from the world on them, or the filth of Satan's society. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So even if we find ourselves in a condition where we're spiritually dead or dying, uh, it is possible to repent, to change, to grow. But even among those who have been around others who are dead and dying, there are some who are still alive and have not defiled their garments and are worthy. But there is encouragement even here. This is probably the darkest uh, passage or darkest section in regards to the seven churches, even though some are thrown in tribulation and might be spewed from God's mouth and things of that nature. Uh, Sardis is pronounced basically dead on arrival with only a few who are still alive. So it's a pretty dire circumstance. But physically, if we're almost dead, we have a terminal disease, there's not much hope. And it requires sometimes a miracle or death will occur. So a miracle is available. God can raise the dead. We need to understand that. But just because you find yourself unable to move or almost comatose spiritually and not able to produce much, 
You can look to God who can perform miracles. He's raised the dead before. And weren't we really the walking dead among the world who had no spiritual life at all when God chose to call us in the first place? And we had to go from dead to living? So he's done it with each and every one of us once already. So if we will out ourselves through wrong spiritual diet and not enough spiritual exercise and so on, the same things physically we need for our physical bodies, we need for our spiritual beings and our spirit minds. If we haven't been doing those things and we've let ourselves become diseased, deceived, and are almost dead, understand that God can change that. And he's where we need to turn. He that overcomes, verse 5, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Now, that's what we're all after. The garments of righteousness worn by those who are in the kingdom of God. So, even if we're dead or dying in Sardis, if we overcome, we'll be clothed in white. So, resurrection and spiritual rejuvenation can occur. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So we might not be much to be proud of or to be pleased with in Christ's eyes when we're dead or dying spiritually, but he says if we overcome, he will be willing to confess our name before his Father. He will not be ashamed of us, in other words, and will not say, well, let's not talk about that one. But he'll say, yes, Father, that one has overcome, and confess your name or mine, and before the angels. And the angels in heaven, we know, rejoice over one sinner brought to repentance. So let's not give up if we find ourselves in the condition mentioned of Sardis, because miracles do yet happen today. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, even if we're nearly dead, we have ears, can we hear? Can we grasp? Can we begin to look to God and come back to life again so that we can live in the light of His face? No one in these two chapters, two and three, is consigned completely to death. God is very encouraging and gives opportunity for anyone who will grow, who will overcome, and who will do the things that are needed to be done. So let's go on then to verse 7. The angel of the church in Philadelphia write, uh, and here we might catch the attention of 99% of the church, because that's where most think they are. And most people who've heard this, or who will hear at some time in the future maybe, this series may have been sitting back and waiting till we got to their church, because that's where most think they are. Then how do we have seven if 99% consider themselves to be Philadelphia? Well... I think the percentage is much lower than that, and people are not making the correct analysis is the problem. At any rate, if your mind is closed, it's closed. 
But if it's open, then we can take instruction from all the words of God to ourselves, because every one of them fits me, I know, and they all have to fit you as well. So, let's go to Philadelphia here anyway. These things, says he that is holy, he that is true, there again referring to Christ as it has been all through here, he that has the key of David, still referring to Christ, who has the key of David. I'm amazed sometimes at people who take this clear out of context and say they have the key of David. No, they don't. It clearly says here, he, Christ, has the key of David. He is the only one who has the key of David. He has not given it away to someone else, especially some man on this earth, who claims he has it. Now, we may understand a lot of the keys of salvation. We might understand David's key role in it. But Christ himself is a descendant of David in a physical line, and certainly they were on the same page spiritually. David being a man after God's own heart, a man who repented to the depths, even though he made mistakes. The difference in Christ and David is that David did make mistakes, but he did repent from the depths of his heart and therefore became like Christ. It does not say here that that key was given to anyone else, that he still holds it. He that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts. You see, obviously, from the continuing context, that it's still Christ who controls everything. He's the one that opens and shuts doors. If he opens them, no man can shut them. If he shuts them, no one can open them. He opened them for Herbert Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God, and no man could shut it until the work of Herbert Armstrong and Worldwide Church of God was finished. Then those doors shut, and they have remained shut. There are those who are trying to continue that work and are on TV and on radio and are printing all kinds of magazines and booklets and so on, but it's having almost no effect. It is a door that has been shut, and it cannot be opened. The nose-to-tail fulfillment of Worldwide Church of God, if that was indeed Philadelphia in the line of seven churches from uh, the apostles on down, it's over. It's shut. It's done. Herbert Armstrong was used to call many. Out of that many, few are now being chosen. So that work is done. Now there may be a few come in, and I think this is the case, at the eleventh hour, and some who are not qualifying may be booted out and replaced with someone off the streets. But it's not going to be the result of some worldwide evangelistic campaign by some dregs or remnants of the worldwide Church of God. That door has been shut. And anyone who says that they have the open door of Philadelphia is talking through the top of their hat are blowing it out their ear because they are not doing what Herbert Armstrong did in any way, shape, or fashion. People started coming into the church by the droves 
in the late 50s, early 60s, and continued through the 70s and even into the 80s. And no one is having anywhere near that kind of success. A few listen, a few may attend, most of them drop out after a week or two or three. And not very many ever come in the first place. So you're whistling in the wind or in the dark when you think that you're trying to do the same thing Herbert Armstrong did. It's time to reevaluate. Time to understand that the calling is essentially done. And now the choosing is going on. And God had to spew us out of his mouth, as we'll get to here in a little bit. And we all were spewed. So Laodicea did take effect. But let's finish this before we get to that. God did set, Christ did set before Herbert Armstrong an open door, and then he shut it. And no man can open it, even though there are those who are trying. I know your works. <clears throat> Behold, I have set before you an open door, and no man can shut it. For you have a little strength, not a lot, a little. Uh, even physically speaking, uh, by power of TV and radio, it was fairly powerful across the United States and lessened by degree as it went around the world, but never was it a truly worldwide work where every ear heard and every eye saw. God is going to open a door again. He's going to open it before the remnant that he draws out from all seven churches and brings into the desert to build his temple. It has to be rebuilt, according to Haggai and various other scriptures, and it has to be built in a way that surpasses what we knew in worldwide. It has to be head and shoulders, spiritually above, and, and even in the physical work that has to be done, it also has to leapfrog over worldwide Church of God, which was a calling work. The calling was done, the few are now being chosen, they are going to be gathered, and then God is going to open a door again for those seven golden candlesticks or seven churches and the two witnesses who are with them in Zechariah 4 and Revelation 11 to do a mighty work. And when that work is finished, according to Matthew 24:14, the gospel will be preached around the world to all the creation. And then the end will come. And the end does come three and a half days after the two witnesses are killed in the streets of Jerusalem. So when Matthew 24, 14 is truly fulfilled, the end will come. Herbert Armstrong did not fulfill Matthew 24, 14. He fulfilled Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He made many disciples of many nations. That was his calling, even though he did not fully understand that. He had once thought, and told me so in 1981, that he was Zerubbabel, and he thought that he and his son probably would die in the streets of Jerusalem, and the end would be there. But that's not what God had in mind. Now, they may have been a minor type because they did build a church in the end time. But the church has to be resurrected out of the chaos that it is in today with a righteous 10% remnant, and then they will be given the power over the nations. And when their job is finished, the end will come. All right, let's go on. You have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. And I think that that is certainly true of 
worldwide under Herbert Armstrong. Uh, we didn't have all understanding. We've learned some sense, and we'll continue to learn as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Savior. But we did stand by the name of God, and we did keep the words as we understood them. So even though the perfect understanding may not have been there, and still isn't, by and large, we had the truth and did follow it. And you deny his name not just by saying, I deny God, but by works, by denying the things that we know and not following through and doing them. That's the critical part of denying his name. And you can do that without literally physically denying his name verbally. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. It's interesting that he puts it this way, because we do have those who were of Esau, and you remember the prophecy of Jacob and Esau there uh, in Genesis, and how it says that at the end, the Edomites, Esau, would overcome uh, Jacob and laugh him to scorn as they plunder us. And that is repeated in the book of Obadiah and other places. So on a physical level, we have people who say they are Jews but are truly of Esau and are Edomites who converted to Judaism as a religion but are not blood Jews. So they lie. Primarily the Ashkenazi or Ashkenazi Jews are the Edomites. Now there's some crossover, I'm sure, in intermarriage, but the Orthodox or Sephardic Jews are probably more true to the line of true blood Jews. But we have that in the world, that is, and they're just about to destroy the economy of the United States and laugh at us when they overcome Jacob at the end. Because Jacob, I mean Esau, has held that grudge ever since uh, Jacob took the birthright. And that's the way it has been. And Esau has been trodden under and hated all these years. But God says that they will triumph at the end and laugh at the calamity of Jacob there in the book of Obadiah. But then they will be punished for it. So physically in the nation, we see them taking prominence right now. And in fact, this very day, we see them crashing the economy of Jacob, both the United States and Britain, and destroying the Israelitish nations so the Gentiles can prevail. It is in process. Now, before that, in the church, the worldwide church of God, we had people by the name of Raider, the people by the name of Tkach, both names which I have traced back and found to be Edomite-Jewish connections from the areas they came from. So not only in the world and in the banking system and in the government that is destroying physical Jacob, we also have with, had within the church of God those who claim to be spiritual Israelites who were indeed spiritual Edomites and who have laughed at the calamity of the church, which they have had a great hand in destroying. So I do think that worldwide church of God was Philadelphia and the many of all of these things have taken place there. We had the open door that has now been shut. We had the Edomites who said they were Jews, but were not, who have had a great hand in destroying.
But eventually, they're going to know that God has loved us. If we're faithful, if we're true, if we're strong, even if we left our Philadelphia attitude and became Laodicean, weak and lackadaisical in our approach, um, it can still be changed. So I think that at one point, nearly all of us were a part of the nose-to-tail Church of Philadelphia through history, but now we are fragmented and we may have elements of all the seven churches because they do indeed all exist at the end. After Philadelphia, we had one more, which achieved prominence and has had a fairly short lifespan from the time perhaps Herbert Armstrong died until today, uh, about a quarter of a century. But uh, even it was spewed and blown apart and now is scattered, and we all are fragments of all seven. All right, let's finish this about Philadelphia. Uh, they're going to realize that God has loved us because they're still going to be alive, many of them who were not truly spiritual Israelites or Jews, but were faking it, were playing church, and maybe had a different agenda all along. But they're going to see this thing turn around, and they're going to see God bless the remnant of worldwide uh, when it does an all-powerful, important work at the end of preaching the gospel around the world as a witness, two witnesses, and then the end will indeed come. So he says in verse 10 then, Because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. So there are those of Philadelphia who will be alive, obviously, at the time the tribulation comes because God says he will protect them from it uh, because of the work that was done. Now, there are several of the churches uh, who are mentioned in conjunction with the great tribulation at the end. I'm not going to go back for sake of time, but several of them say they'll be cast into tribulation or go into prison and be in tribulation and so on. So they all exist at the time the tribulation occurs. Just another internal evidence that they didn't just die out after each era ended through history. There was that, but there was also all alive at the end. So he says, verse 11, Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which you have, that no man take your crown. Uh, we could give it up. We could let it go. We could not succeed, and then others be invited in from the highways and byways and take our crown. Now, those in Philadelphia say there's no criticism of them. Uh, there's a warning here, certainly, that that which we did have, we not let go of it, and I think that most of the church did let go of it and became Laodicean in approach and attitude, and the whole church was then scattered, was it not? But even though he does not enumerate problems in Philadelphia in the same way he does, say, Sardis or Pergamos or, or uh, Thyatira or some of the others, he does say they have to overcome. That means they're not perfect. That means they have faults, they have flaws, they have problems. So even if you might adjudge yourself Philadelphian, uh, whether that be correct or not, uh, you do have things to overcome regardless. So even Philadelphia, they will not be there unless they overcome. It is 
salvation is conditional upon every human being called into God's church and given his spirit to overcome. That is the condition. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, be there forever. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem. I refer you to Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2, and also to Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, which is speaking of the church and how that we are a part of Jerusalem which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. So he mentions that new name here again, as he did before. He'll give, he'll give new names to those who do overcome. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, we approach Laodicea, and God forbid, in our minds perhaps, that we should be classed as Laodicea. But what about those who did not hold fast? What about those who became lackadaisical, were not on fire spiritually, were kind of on the fence, one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God, and can't we all recognize that we've been there? Doesn't the pull of the world, the pull of society and culture and some of the things that are out there, doesn't that work on our human nature? Doesn't it tempt us? Haven't we imbibed to one degree or another in it and not been wholeheartedly alive and productive spiritually? I don't think there's anyone in the church anywhere who could claim that he didn't have periods of time in his life in which he became lukewarm, not truly on fire spiritually. And I think, frankly, that all or nearly all the church entered into that attitude at one time or another. And in the last 25 years. It is very, very dangerous to put yourself in the role of a Philadelphian and call everybody else Laodicean. Because every last one of us has had Laodicean attitudes, and if you don't think you have, then you're lying to yourself and you need to get better judgment and learn some better analysis because how many of us have done everything we've done, everything our hand is found to do with our might? How many of us have had at all times the zeal, the enthusiasm of Uriah at the wall or of David? How many of us have been truly wholehearted before our God at all times? And if sometimes not, then perhaps more often than not. And that's why we were all involved in this scattering, because Laodicea took over from Philadelphia. And that is the major attitude today. Let's look at that. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginner or instigator of the creation of God. Again, speaking of Christ himself. These are his words now. I know your works. Even Laodicea has works. They do things that are good. But, 
but you are neither cold nor hot. I would you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Cold is easy to reject. Cold and dead like the description of Sardis. That's easy to reject. It's easy to see. It's easy to comprehend and understand. But hot is what God wants. He wants us on fire for him, for his kingdom, for his work, for his church, for each other. He wants us full of zeal and energy, drive, to help and to serve, to fulfill his purposes. His ultimate purpose is to save the world. And he wants us there at the goal line, ready to go when it's time to set up the millennium and to help him with the monumental task of bringing peace to the entire planet and bringing conversion and repentance and the fruit of the Spirit to the people of this world. And how can we do that if we're lackadaisical, lukewarm, oh, well, maybe tomorrow, or not now, I'm tired, or whatever our excuse might be? He has to have those who are ready to put their might and everything that their hand finds to do. And he's judging those things now because he wants people ready to go, not people who are half asleep and resting on their oars. And that's what overcame worldwide. Not just false doctrine from Edomites, but also a sleepiness. All the virgins slumbered and slept, remember? And then it was time to wake up, and some had some oil left, and some didn't. And they were counseled to quickly go to those who had oil. Well, who will that be? That will be the end-time remnant who has the oil. Remember Zechariah 4, where the two witnesses pour out oil to all seven churches. That means all seven churches have to be there when the two witnesses are preaching and teaching, and the tribulation is going on. Now, they are to address the churches before the tribulation even begins. It tells them to leave out the altar of the Gentiles there at the beginning of Revelation 11 and examine the altar and those that worship therein, the ministry and the people. So, that judgment, that plumb line, that rod has to be applied to the church first, then later when the tribulation starts to the world. Okay, let's go on. I would you were cold or hot, so then because you were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Well, if we've been spewed, that means that we were not adjudged hot or cold in God's mind. We were in the church, but not on fire or not stone cold like Sardis. So, stone cold doesn't get it. But neither does lukewarm get it. We've got to stir ourselves to seek God with our whole heart, or he will put us in the tribulation with the other 90% of the church, and we will be tried in the fire. Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth, because you say, I am rich and increased with goods. 
And is that not exactly what those who claim to be Philadelphia say? We're the only ones who are doing the work of God. This is the only ministry that's righteous. Follow me and everything will be okay. What they are saying in essence is, I am the one who's rich and increased with spiritual goods and don't have need of anything. There are many, many, many ministers in the church of God today who have that attitude. Now, they won't say it in those exact words because that would automatically brand them. But they certainly say it in attitude and approach. <coughs> and that is the reality of the matter. Anybody who says, I have all you need, fits this category. I can, that can include you and me. We need to admit that we have been in Laodicean, and we need to get on fire. I don't have need of anything, and know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. There are many organizations and many ministers who say that we have restored everything that Herbert Armstrong did. We're doing the work of Herbert Armstrong all over again. We don't really need anything. We have everything he gave us. He gave us all these uh, 18 restored truths, or however they want to phrase it, and that's all we need. We don't need anything else. We're it. Isn't it scary to be so self-deceived as to think that you're a-okay and have all that you need, and at the same time, God's judgment is... We're wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked. He sees us in a lot different light than we sometimes see ourselves. And some are so spiritually blind and deaf that they think they're A-OK and everything's going to be just fine if they're in that group. Brethren, that's not true. <coughs> we can sit in this group and be just as Laodicean as anybody else. So we need to take stock. I was. I hope I'm recovering from it. But I have to admit it. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Most of Laodicean apparently will go into tribulation. And that's a great percentage of the church. So when it says 90% and a 10% faithful remnant in Isaiah 1 and various other places, God knows exactly what he's talking about. Ezekiel 5 says a little less than 10% as well. Isaiah 1 says a small remnant. Ezekiel took 10% out and then took a few more out. So most of the church, unfortunately, is going to have to go into the tribulation to wake up and to be tried in the fire and to produce spiritual gold. Now, we can repent ahead of time and miss that. But all of us who consider ourselves Philadelphian over the years have become, I'm afraid, Laodicean and need a great deal of repentance. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich in white raiment, that you may be clothed, uh, 
that your nakedness, that the shame of your nakedness do not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. So they say, you're, you are spiritually blind to yourself. There's a lot of the church that is just spiritually blind to their own problems and their own lacks and their own spiritual condition. And that can be any one of us who is self-deceived, because self-deception comes so easily. It's easier to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And then yet there's those on the other end of the spectrum who never think they can ever do anything good. Uh, and that, too, can be self-deception, because all of us can do some good. And remember, miracles come from God. So it doesn't matter what you are or what you were. If you repent, change, you can become what God wants you to be. I mean, even Laodicea, who is so blinded, it says, can wake up and can see if they anoint their eyes with ISAF, the Holy Spirit of God. And that is not much available anymore because most of the church truly is self-deceived today and they think they're something they aren't. And we can be in that number so very, very easily and perhaps are. But we need to understand the who, what, why, where, when, and how. We need to grasp what the church has become. As many as I love, remember Hebrews 12, he chastens every son whom he loves. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Zeal is a fiery word. Might, zeal, strength, fire. Not blah. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. I'll be at the wedding supper. Stands at the door and knocks like he did in Song of Songs. And she was in bed and had her shoes off and was comfy. And she finally pulled herself out of bed, but it was too late. He was gone. Does that fit or what? To him that overcomes, it doesn't matter if we were lukewarm, we were spewed out of God's mouth like so much vomit, we can be restored. To him that overcomes, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, be in the kingdom of God with Christ as his bride, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. So he's saying, hey, I did it. I've overcome the world, as he said in John. Don't fear the world. Fear me, I've overcome the world. You do the same. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there are seven messages uh, that have point out different quirks, different faults, different sins, point out good things about various people. But I personally can find myself in all seven of those messages, perhaps for the good here and there, but I can find an awful lot of the negative as well. So I know I have to overcome, and we all do. So we need to think about who, what, why, where, when, and how. Those are six words that all need to be answered. And there is much, much insight in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation into how God judges the church today as far as its problems are concerned, as far as its strengths and what we all need to do, 
all seven churches, and that includes then everyone who is in the church, has some overcoming to do if they're to sit with him in his throne. Now, I'm going to take a few minutes here to hit chapter 4 and 5 a little bit at the end of this because he points out a lot of problems, and after chapter 5, we begin to see some pretty horrible things happening on the earth. But he points out to us in chapters 2 and 3 how we need to overcome and what is available to us if we do. And as soon as he finishes these messages to the church, he gives a lot of hope and inspiration. And I want to close this with that because it's easy for us to get discouraged and frustrated and wonder when it's going to be and be impatient and all kinds of attitudes can overcome us and beat us down. But he gives us some very strong encouragement here before he then launches into uh, the seals and the problems that are about to hit the earth. So let's examine this a little bit. I won't take a lot of time with it, but... There's a lot here that can be encouraging, and I think that it needs to be said when we look at the mess, really, that the church is in today. And we need hope, because without vision, the people perish. So after he gives this message, and he chastens us by word, and tries to encourage us a bit, then he gives some real hope and inspiration and encouragement, beginning in chapter 4, immediately after that. So I think it's... Uh, imperative that we have a look at that so that we might be encouraged and strengthened to go ahead and overcome instead of just giving up and saying, well, that's too much, I can't do it. Let's see a little bit more of what's ahead. Chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Now that would be quite a sight to see if you were John seeing this vision. Here comes this message from Christ about the churches, and it's kind of up and down between... Uh, chastening and hope, but then a door was opened in heaven. Aren't we hoping for a door to be opened so that we can see what's in the future? Well, that's what John saw, and he shares it with us here. And Christ told him to. The first voice which I heard was, it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up here, and I will show you things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now, at the time of the resurrection, we go before the throne of God. So in vision, uh, a door was opened, and John, in the vision, went to heaven and saw the throne. Just what we will actually experience if we grow and overcome. He that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, a beautiful stone, not a fish, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like an emerald, deep, beautiful green, like the emerald pools up in Zion. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. That would be quite a sight to see. It's a sight that we will see if we overcome. Out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, Awe-inspiring, spine-tingling. I heard a clap of thunder that was preceded by some very close lightning yesterday afternoon, and it made me jump. It was so close. And it inspired one of the neighbor's dogs to run up to me and stay with me for an hour. It scared him so bad. Lightning and thundering and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire. Well, there's Zechariah 4. 
There's Revelation 1. Before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God, and those seven spirits of God oversee the seven churches, the seven golden candlesticks. And before the throne, uh, there was a sea of glass, like the crystal. And in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne, were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. So thunder and lightning and a sea of glass, with that lightning reflecting off of it and the bright colors, would be truly awesome. There's what you save the word awesome for. It's not a new dress or a pair of jeans that comes out. It's the resurrection of the dead and the throne of God. What are you going to save for the resurrection if everything's awesome? Anyway, these four beasts, and the first beast was like a lion, the second like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. Their reflections were in the sea of glass. The four beasts had of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come, singing songs of praise to God. I'm sure there are more words they say than just those, but that reflects the attitude and approach and the message that their songs have. <coughs> and when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. So we were created for God's pleasure. And he takes pleasure in us as we are pleased with him and obey him and serve him. And he will invite us to the throne of God. What an incredible opportunity that will be. More beautiful than anything you've ever seen on this earth by far. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. It's the book of life. And it has the seven seals of the seven churches. So those who are going to be written in the book of life are sealed in those envelopes. 144,000 total, as we see in chapter 7 and 14. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look therein. Nobody knows who all is going to be in the kingdom of God, but God the Father, and Christ is going to make the recommendations to him. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open it or read the book, neither to look thereon. There are some things that are kept from us. They were kept from John. And one of the elders said to me, Weep not, don't worry. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, our Savior, Christ himself, who loves us, is able to open the book. Uh, he's prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, the midst, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. So he oversees, directs, and guides those seven spirits who have uh, oversight of the churches. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book... 
The four beasts and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of scents, which are the prayers of saints. We find in other places that the prayers of saints are like uh, uh, a holy scent to God, a pleasant smell. And they sung a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, made disciples of all nations, and then chose those out of them who would be chosen. And have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So that 144,000 whose names are in that book of life are going to be revealed. They'll come down with Christ to rule the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands. All the angels of God, singing for joy over those who will be a part of the kingdom of God. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the sea, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him that sits upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. So be it. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. Who is it going to be? Us, I hope, among others. When Christ returns. Why? Because we've obeyed and served him. How? By an absolute miracle of God. Who, what, why, where, when, and how. Those are the things we must consider. All I can say to that is, Amen. And let's worship God with all our hearts and overcome and grow so we can be a part of this and see all that is herein discussed.